I don't know where I'm going with this, Livia. Um, <laughs> other than it was so good. And Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a corporate fraud investigator living in London with my husband and two cats. I'm currently working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. We are so excited to bring you this episode with Elizabeth Wetmore today, the author of the novel Valentine, which is one of our very favorite books from last year. Um, it's set in Texas, and we're both from Texas, so of course it has a special place in our hearts. Elizabeth has a really interesting backstory that really fits the ethos of this podcast. Uh, before devoting herself to writing, she variously attended bar, taught English, drove a cab, edited psychology dissertations, and painted silos and cooling towers at a petrochemical plant. For a time, she lived in a one-room cabin in the woods outside of Flagstaff, Arizona, while she worked as a classical music announcer. A native of West Texas, she is most at home in the desert, near the sea, or on the side of a mountain. She now lives in Chicago. She is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop and is a recipient of a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts and two fellowships from the Illinois Arts Council and numerous other residencies and awards. You can find out more about her on her website, elizabethwetmore.com. Elizabeth was so generous with her time and with her wisdom, so we hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Okay, so thank you so much for coming on our podcast we usually ask people um, to talk about kind of your day jobs and how you balance your writing. So you have such a good story about how you, I mean, you've talked about it in some of your interviews and things like that, but um, you, you wrote your book, Valentine, um, over a period of years, uh, balancing a number, as I understand, of day jobs. Um, so just tell us about your story and that sort of, that sort of thing. I, yeah, so I, I began the the first words that that I that I sort of set down that that eventually made it into the book that would become the book that would become the book. Um, you know, I sat down when I was pregnant with my son back in early 2004. So by the time I sold the book, my son was, you know, 6'3 and kind of hovered over me. And, um, you know, during that time, I taught English part-time um, as adjunct faculty. Um, I, I worked as a copy editor. Um, I have probably copy edited more psychology dissertations than you can shake a stick at, which is cool in a way because it gives you a lot of material. I mean, by the time my son came along, it was mostly teaching and copy editing. I was out of the waitress game by then. I, I left waitressing um, when I went to grad school. That was actually one of my one of my goals was actually not to have to go back to waitressing. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, so I, I worked as a freelance copy editor and a teacher and um, did a little um, taught some fiction workshops around town and um, worked individually with people. And event I gave up teaching pretty early in the game because I realized um, very quickly that, you know, that I would make a lot more money as an editor than as a teacher. So in spite of really, really enjoying teaching, um, I gave it up when Hank was a baby. And, and part of this sort of calculus for my husband and me, um, my husband's a poet, 
and a high school English teacher. And, um, and we live in the city and, you know, part of the calculus for us, um, was we realized very early after Hank was born that the childcare we could afford for him, um, we didn't want for him and the childcare we wanted for him, we couldn't afford. So for the two of us, um, you know, the decision was always how to, how to keep at least one of us home with him. Um, so that we didn't have to, to, you know, um, put him in childcare. And of course, I, you know, here in the States as Megan, well, as y'all both know, um, there, there is no help, right. For, for families, you know, there's no subsidized healthcare, there's no paid family leave. Um, you know, and so for us, um, it was always a matter of trying to figure out how to raise our son in the way that we wanted to, and still be able to, to keep up with our work, you know, so, um, so we had a lot of years when Hank was little, where we just kind of handed him off to each other as one or the other of us was heading out the door to go teach, you know, at a, at an adjunct job. Or I think at one point between the two of us, we had something like five part-time jobs. <laughs> so, and, and there were, you know, there were other things afoot that, that probably, uh, you know, affected our employment. I mean, we were both, you know, again, my husband writes poetry. So, um, you know, we, we've never, you know, we've joked a lot about not having a, a sort of practical bone in the, in the whole family body over here, but, but yeah. But I think um, one of the things that I just appreciate about that is that a lot of people kind of don't talk about that or they don't view that as part of their life, which I think can be, um, hard if you're starting out writing because you think, oh, all these other people must be doing this all the time. And, you know, I'm not a real writer or whatever. Um, but I think as well, uh, it can be damaging for yourself if you're kind of pretending that what you're doing most of the time and what you like eat with is not your real life, right? Like, because you're living that whole time. So how did you kind of keep the balance in your mind about your work that you're doing, you know, but also the writing that you do or you want to do and, and how did you deal with all of that? Yeah, you know, um, I had to, I had to really, after Hank was born, I really had to completely change the way I looked at all of it, you know, and I was kind of, I was well set up for that in a lot of ways. I mean, I didn't write my first short story until I was 28. You know, I mean, I've been late to the game in every possible way. You know, um, I left home at 18 with just a little bit of money in my pocket um, and no real plan and sort of tumbled out into the great wide world. I moved to California and got a job waiting tables. Um, you know, I'm the first of my family to go to college. Um, and, uh, you know, after I moved to California, I started going to community college, just taking a few classes and eventually transferred to a four-year university. And so, you know, it took me like eight years to get my bachelor's degree because um, I was working the whole time, you know, and paying for it. Um, and, uh, and so in some ways I was well prepared for this, you know, I, I, I didn't really think of myself as a writer at all, you know, um, even when I started writing short stories after my waitressing shifts at like 28, you know, I would come home from a waitressing shift and write in the wee hours of the night, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. I thought of myself as a waitress who came home and wrote short stories, um, you know, and, uh, and I went to, I didn't go to graduate school until I was 33, you know, in fact, the day I got the call from the University of Iowa saying that they wanted me to come, but I'd fucked up my paperwork. So I, I, I had, um, I, I hadn't fucked it up. I hadn't sent my, I hadn't sent my, um, 
I hadn't sent my um, transcripts, probably because I owed money um, to my undergrad, you know. So, um, so the day that they called to tell me they wanted me to come, but I needed to sort out some paperwork, I was literally walking out the door to a waitressing shift. So, I mean, I had a landline and the phone rang and I thought mm, I should turn around and go answer that, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, I had my apron on, you know, so in a lot of ways, I was well prepared for this idea that my path wasn't going to be, you know, um, like the paths of most of the people I went to, to grad school with. So, but that being said, I mean, you know, you, you, you see these stories of these 25, 27, 30 year old, you know, people who get these just, you know, blockbuster, you know, book deals and have this sort of preternatural wisdom about the you know, and insights into the human spirit. And I just, I wasn't any of those people, you know, I really had to learn everything. I learned about my characters and myself kind of the hard way, you know. But do, I mean, so both of us are 40 this year mm -hmm. and, you know, we're working on our books and we're like, you know, pitching and things like that. And we can feel, um, I won't say that everybody feels jealous, but like, we definitely sometimes read those stories and feel jealous or whatever. You kind of think, what have I done with my life? So, I mean, how did you deal with that? So, you know, I had to, I had to just let it all go. I really did. I, you know, I mean, I was in the, you know, I had my son when I was 37. Um, you know, I, you know, when I turned 40, you know, I had all kinds of peers who had not only their first book deals, but their second book deals. I mean, by the time I, my book came out when I was 52 last year, you know, I had, I had colleagues from grad school who were on their third or fourth book. So I, I get it. And for me, you know, it really meant just kind of going back to what I've always known about myself, which is that my path is just not the same as other people's paths or a lot of other people's paths. You know, I will say this, the, the thing that kept me coming back to the desk, honestly, um, for Valentine, different things brought me back to the desk for my short stories. But, but the thing that brought me to my desk again and again was every time I thought about giving up on the book, and I, and I did frequently, um, you know, it just, it, it broke my heart to think about abandoning these characters, you know, it really did. And so for me, that meant, you know, I'm coming back to it again and again, sometimes with as long as a year break. I mean, there were, you know, there was a year when Hank was about a year, two years old where I didn't write anything, you know, I mean, nothing, <laughs> like not even in my journal, you know, I was just in it, you know? And, um, and so for me, you know, just letting go of the idea that, that my, my trajectory was the same as other, a lot of other writers was, was, was crucial. And, and I will say this too, I also had to kind of follow that up with a, a real, and, and I, and in a lot of ways, I had to convince myself of this pretty frequently, this idea that, that everything I was bringing to the book that wasn't usual, you know, um, my waitressing experience, um, leaving Texas at 18, um, you know, growing up surrounded by, um, you know, blue collar folks. I mean, you know, every, every man in my family worked in the oil patch and as, and as roughnecks, not as, you know, not as owners, you know, they weren't wildcatters, you know, they were roughnecks. Um, you know, I had to, and, 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 and also my experience raising Hank, I had to really, um, convince myself that all of those things added to 
rather than detracted from my writing and what I brought to my writing. Um, and so I'll give you a really good example. Um, in the early stages of Valentine, I imagined that the book would tell the stories of the little girls who lived on Larkspur Lane. So Deborah Ann Pierce is, she's actually residue from that early draft when I imagined that the little girls would tell the story of, of, that, of that winter and spring and summer. And after I had my son, um, I suddenly looked at the women who lived on Larkspur Lane in a really different way. And, and I suddenly understood their lives in a way that I just, I never had before. I'm, a, I'm, I'm exactly the same age as Deborah Ann Pierce would have been in 1976. So when I was writing from the perspective of all those little girls on Larkspur Lane, you know, I was mining my childhood in a lot of ways. And, and, and Deborah Ann was the easiest character for me, hands down, you know. Um, and then I had Hank. And, and found myself not only raising a, a, a child, but also, you know, trying to hold on tight to my own dreams and my own goals. Um, and, and under some pretty serious financial pressure too. My husband and I had a lot of really lean times when Hank was a baby. And so, you know, I suddenly looked at those women's lives in a complete, with a completely different eye, you know, and, and, and I saw them with so much more sympathy and, um, and saw them in such more, so much more complicated ways than I'd ever been able to before. And so, you know, in my case, at least, um, you know, having my son really, you know, it, yeah, it slowed me down for sure, probably a decade, you know, but, but it also allowed me to see, you know, Mary Rose Whitehead's life and um, Corrine's life and Suzanne Ledbetter's life and, and Rita Nunnally's life, a really minor character, this woman who's, whose husband was killed in Vietnam and she's just working all the time just to, just to keep a roof over her kid's head. You know, It really made me see them in a different way. So I had to have a lot of, a lot of faith that my life and, and the, life, the life I had lived and the life I was currently living added to rather than detracted from the book. So but it was hard, <laughs> you know, it has been hard. And I, and I think, and I think a lot of us reach a point in our lives where, you know, we, we hit 30, you know, we hit 35, no book, you know, we hit 38, no book, we hit 40, no book, you know, we hit 45, no book, you know, and we start to think it's time to set this aside, right. And, and move along to the, to the business of living, um, you know, as if this thing that we're doing, um, doesn't have value because it's not earning money and it may never earn money. And that was something I really struggled against, you know, having faith. And, and I, I never expected Valentine to, to do what it's done. You know, um, I, I turned to my husband just before the book came out and said, I expect our lives to get very quiet after this book comes out. You know, I had read, I had read the numbers on debut books. You know, I, I knew that it was unlikely that I would ever earn my advance back and, you know, and that I would be lucky to sell five, 10,000 copies, you know, so, you know, so, so for me, it was all just an enormous leap of faith for years. <laughs> And, 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 and ultimately what brought me back to it was my love and affection for these characters and the place and, and, a, and a sense that their stories deserve to be told. You know, y'all are from West Texas, so y'all know the literature that comes out of West Texas. Um, almost all of it is about the stories of men and boys. Yeah, and you know, often men and boys with privilege, right? Like with a lot of, right or from that point of view, right? Right. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, Cormac McCarthy is lovely. He's yeah. not a Texan, um, you know, but also, you know, those those characters are are very particular types. Right. And and those were not the stories I saw reflected in my life as a little girl growing up, you know, or as a woman who goes back to visit family, you know, as often as possible. So. So I wanted those stories out there. Well, we, I mean, we've said this before, but we loved, loved this book. And the reason is because you, of how you did get, get it right. Uh, you did get Texas right. Um, and, and that's so rare. I'd say you, and then Attica Locke is another writer I just adore. And she writes about East Texas, where I really grew up in Houston and she gets it right. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's, that's too, too. I can't think of anyone of, else. <laughs> I cannot think of a single other person. You know who else? Oh, is so great! Right, um, this young man, Brian Washington. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. I just read his first. This is his debut book. He's twenty. He's one of those people. He's twenty-seven <laughs> years old, you guys. But his writing is so beautiful. He's got this is his first novel, and then his collection of short stories is called Lot. And uh, he writes about growing up as an immigrant, um, the child of immigrants, poor, black, queer in the Houston suburbs. And he gets it. He just nails it. I think so. But yeah, yeah. So I think that's you know, one of the things about Texas is there are so many different kinds of people and so many different stories. And it's not just, you know, the cowboy and rodeo stars and ladies with big hair who go to, what is that church in Houston in the basketball stadium? Anyway. Um, so, but it's not, like we said, it's not a part where people, that people write a lot about. Um, but the minute I, like, by page two, I could, I could smell the sour gas. I could feel like the dry air, you know, the dust everywhere walking. You know, my, my, my mom's family is all kind of the same, the same class, the same kind of milieu as, 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 as the characters in your book. And so I, yeah, I had to call her and say, hey, you know, what did you think? Cause she was reading it at the same time. And, you know, we had a lot of conversations about it. Um, but one thing, um, what, I mean, you've said that it was important to you to kind of tell the story that doesn't get told very often about the state. Um, how did you, how did you do this? Like, what did you, what, what did you, what did you do to make this, like, what was important to you as far as like from a craft perspective? You know, I, when and I'm at secrets. my best as a writer and, and frankly, as a person, when I'm at my best as a writer and a person, um, you know, I, I listen a lot to other people's stories and I'm able to do it with a, with a real open heart, you know, an open and true heart. That's when I'm at my best. It took me a long time to be at my best to write a story about Texas. When I left, I, you know, I, I had no intention of going back except for Christmas, you know, and I, and when I started to write, my first short stories were set in Phoenix and I had no intention of writing about West Texas ever, but I had these voices, you know, of these women and girls that had stuck with me through the years. I was a little girl who read a lot and I was also a little girl who eavesdropped a lot. So I spent a lot of time sitting on the back porch at night after supper, listening to my mom and her girlfriends and the ladies in the neighborhood 
um, sit on the back porch, you know, smoking cigarettes, chain. I remember the like clouds of smoke, you know, smoking, smoking Benson and Hedges and like drinking Bloody Marys and bitching about their lives, you know, or commiserating or, or cheering each other on, you know, and I have very, very clear memories of, you know, what that sounded like in the midst of an oil boom. You know, which is to say, um, you know, people had jobs, people were saving money, maybe they would finally be able to send a kid to college, the first kid, um, you know, maybe they would expand on their little, you know, 900 square foot ranch style house that everyone was squeezed into. Um, maybe they'd take a vacation somewhere other than Lake Spence, you know, maybe they'd go, maybe they'd drive to Disneyland, you know, and then I heard those same conversations in the midst of an oil bust, you know, which was, um, whose house had been foreclosed upon, who was leaving town. Um, there's a, this is old joke in oil towns as y'all probably know, you know, um, in the midst of an oil bust, the only people making any money are the U-Haul guys, right? You know, um, and so those stories really stuck with me. And more importantly, those voices really stuck with me. I write, I write by sound in a lot of ways. You'll never ever see me writing in the corner of a coffee shop because I'm constantly reading aloud and, and trying to catch the rhythms of the of the speech and the and the sort of the sort of, I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but the song right, the song of the story, you know, and the way that the language moves and um, the way a sentence unfolds and maybe curls back around on itself. And so those voices were really, had always kind of stuck with me, but, you know, I'd been gone for a long time and I'd come back for visits. And most importantly, I still really saw my hometown and the people there from a from a great distance in a lot of ways, you know, I felt like I had changed, I'd left, I'd seen the rest of the world, I judged them and, and harshly, <laughs> you know, often harshly. Um, so when, when it became apparent to me that I had to write this book, you know, that, that these voices were never going to pipe down until I wrote this book, I changed the way I went home. You know, um, so I would go home for visits and I would borrow my sister's pickup truck. My, my sister married a cattle rancher. Um, and so I'd borrow my sister's pickup truck and pack a lunch and spend hours just driving around out in the oil patch. And, you know, I, I went to the downtown library and pulled old copies of the Odessa American. I sat and listened and tried to listen with a less sort of judgmental ear than I had for my whole life. You know, and and a couple of things happened, and I took a lot of notes. Um, but one of the things that happened over those years was, um, first, I fell back in love with the land. I really did. You know, um, maybe because I've always lived in cities, or mostly lived in cities since I, I left Odessa. Um, I came to really appreciate the quiet and the solitude. Um, and that kind of austere beauty of the desert, particularly when you get away from the derricks, which doesn't take long, right? I mean, you can leave Odessa, you know, and be up in Marfa in a couple of hours in that beautiful, you know, Chihuahuan desert. Um, so it doesn't take long to get away from the oil derricks. And I really, really fell back in love with the land and the dark skies and the, the ability to be alone quickly. Um, you know, here in Chicago, you have to drive forever you know, to get any, you have to go to the UP to get any solitude, you know. Um, and so, so the, the first thing that happened was I fell back in love with the land. Um, and that gave me, and, and I think you see that in the book, um, 
you know, which is good because among other things I'm trying to do with this book is maybe bring some attention to the environmental, this slow rolling hundred year environmental disaster that's happening in that part of the world and, and getting worse all the time. Right. I mean, they're starting to have earthquakes there because of, you know, the fracking. So, um, so I fell back in love with the land and from there it was kind of a, a short, a short move to, um, to kind of fall back in love with my hometown enough you know, to, to write about it with, um, with again, a kind of a true and open heart, you know? So, but that being said that, but I, but that being said, I mean, I also did a ton of research. Um, you know, I asked a lot of friends who had more direct experience with what it would, what it was like to be Mexican American in Odessa in the 1970s or in West Texas, you know, um, yeah, I questioned myself, constantly. I mean, the, the first big question that I went back and forth on for a couple of years actually was what was my motivation for making this awful crime happen to a Latina girl, you know, a, a young Latina, as opposed to one of the white girls in town, you know, um, and that was a pretty scary choice for me you know, because her experience was so different from mine and because Odessa was so deeply segregated in the 70s. So like what I love about that is that you don't look away, like you don't look away from the good things as well. Right. Like, but I mean, you're not like, I wouldn't say the book is judgmental, but it's also like, you know, it doesn't, it's not like everything's fine. You know, um, it really looks pretty head on at all the bad stuff. And I think tells just like this great, honest story. So I really love that. Um, Maybe in a way that only someone who is from inside it can tell, but also has the outside perspective. Like you don't, and maybe that's one of the reasons we're not seeing the books about Texas that we want to see is not that there aren't Texan writers who can do the job, but maybe the, they're not getting the attention because they're not telling the story that outsiders think of. I mean, there were a couple of times in the editing process where I really had to say, you know, <laughs> you know, no, nope, we're not going to we're not going to change this, you know, because it wouldn't be it wouldn't be true. Right. What's that old what's that old saw from like Eudora Welty or Flannery O'Connor, Carson McCullers, one of those great old grandmamas of of fiction. You know, if you're going to write fiction, it had better be true. You know, so, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. So. Yeah. And I think I but I think you're right. I think there are a lot of people. I mean, I think of Paulette Giles you know, as a great Texas writer who I'm reading Stormy Weather right now, which is set in the oil patch in the 30s. Um, and it's it's fantastic, you know, and I don't think it came out in 2007. And I don't remember it getting just a, a huge amount of attention. Um, you know, I mean, I've I met Miss Giles briefly at a um, at a conference last year, and and frankly was so fangirled out that I I hardly was able to you know sort of keep my poise. But just spending like a few minutes with her, I think probably she just really doesn't give a shit like at all, you know. But but I but she strikes me as a writer who's written beautifully and honestly about Texas, um, who has not gotten nearly the attention that she deserves, with the exception of News of the World. Um, which I think won the National Book Award, maybe, but but she's got, you know, she's got half a dozen books that are beautiful, um, you know, about Texas. And I feel like she hasn't gotten, you know, some of the the traction that she deserves. But and I wonder if I think you may be right, you know, I wonder if her resistance to writing for um New Yorkers, you know, or you know, for the coast, as they say, you know, has played into that at all. 
Yeah. Because I've sure. read some that were some books that were set in um, set in Texas and in and around Houston that really it was obvious they were by outsiders because they it read like everything, every detail was kind of a set, a set building detail. Um, like, and it, they were the sorts of things that you would expect someone to notice who just drove through town for a couple of weeks. Um, right. And so, you know, it was like, okay, yes, you've seen Friday Night Lights. Congratulations. Um, and, uh, you know, which, you know, in, in its defense does get a lot of things right. Um, oh, sure. But so we wanted to know if you would kind of give our listeners a small taste of sure. Valentine so they can, they can, if they haven't read it, can one want to read it, but to kind of hear what we're talking about. Sure. So um, I think someone mentioned in an email that you really liked Corrine's first chapter. So I think I'll just read a little bit from that. Do you mind if I read about, oh, maybe a couple of pages? Sounds great. I mean, I listened to you read the whole book, yeah. so, you know. <laughs> this is Corrine Shepard's first chapter. Well, it's a murderous little shit. The skinny yellow stray with lime-colored eyes and balls the size of silver dollars. Somebody dumped it in the dirt lot behind the Shepard's house at the end of December. A Christmas present that wore thin quick. A bad idea from the get-go, Corrine told Potter at the time and no creature has been safe since. Songbirds have perished by the dozens, finches, a family of cactus wrens nesting under the storage shed, too many sparrows and bats to count, even a large mockingbird. In four months, the stray has doubled in size. His pale fur glows like a chrysanthemum. Corrine is kneeling in front of the toilet when she hears the panicked cry of another small animal in the backyard. The birds shriek and beat their wings against the ground and the garter snakes and brown racers die quietly, their light bodies barely disturbing the hard packed dirt in her empty flower beds. This is the sound made by a mouse or squirrel, maybe even a young prairie dog. Critters, she thinks, that's what Potter used to call them and her throat closes up. Holding her thin brown hair with one hand, she finishes bringing up the contents of her stomach, then sits with her cheek pressed against the bathroom's cool wall. The animal cries out again, and in the silence that follows, she tries to piece together the details of last night. Did she have five drinks or six? What did she say and to whom? The ceiling fan rattles overhead. The meaty stink of salted peanuts and scotch drifts toward the open window and Corrine's eyes are wet from the force of her sick. All this and that bald spot on the crown of her head getting bigger by the day. Not that this particular detail has anything to do with how drunk she got last night, but still, it is part of the inventory, as is the small square of toilet paper dangling from her chin. She flicks it into the toilet bowl, closes the lid, and lays her forehead against the porcelain while she listens to the tank fill back up. Sloppy as a bag of fishing worms left out in the sun, Potter would tell Corrine if he were here. Then he'd fix her a Bloody Mary, heavy on the trappies hot sauce, and fry up some bacon and eggs. He'd hand her a piece of toast to sop up the bacon grease. Back in business, he'd say, pace yourself next time, sweetheart. Six weeks since Potter died, went out in a blaze of glory. And this morning she can hear her husband's voice so plainly, he might as well be standing in the doorway. Same old goofy smile, same old hopeful self. 
When the phone in the kitchen rings, the sound tears a hole in the quiet. There's not one person in the world Corrine cares to talk to. Alice lives in Prudhoe Bay and only calls on Sunday nights when long distance rates are low. Even then, Corrine, who hasn't forgiven her daughter for the blizzard that shut down the airport in Anchorage and kept her from Potter's funeral, always keeps the conversation short, talking just long enough to reassure her daughter that she is fine. I am just fine, she tells Alice, staying busy with the garden, going to church on Wednesday nights and Sunday morning, going through your daddy's things so the Salvation Army can pick them up. Every word of it is bullshit. She hasn't boxed up so much as a t-shirt of that old man's. Out back, the garden is nothing but packed dirt and bird carcasses. And after 40 years of letting Potter drag her to church, she isn't about to give those sanctimonious bitches another minute or another nickel. In the bathroom, his leather shaving kit still sits open on the vanity. His earplugs are on his nightstand, alongside an Elmer Kelton book and his pain medicine. The jigsaw puzzle he was working on when he died is still spread out on the kitchen table and his new cane leans against the wall behind it. A stack of life insurance forms, along with six banker's envelopes from the credit union, mostly fifties, a few hundred dollar bills, lies on a gold plastic lazy Susan in the middle of the table. Sometimes Corrine thinks about setting the envelopes on fire one by one with the money still inside. The phone rings again and Corrine presses her eyes against the palms of her hands. A week earlier, she broke off the volume dial in a fit of pique. Now, with the ringer stuck on high, the god-awful off-key chime pierces every nook and cranny of the house and yard, screaming when it could have asked. The voice on the other end is equally unpleasant when Corrine finally snatches up the phone when she says testily, Shepherd residence. I'll stop there. Yeah, I really, I mean, I love, I just love the voice. And I loved hearing you read it. I just, like part of the reason that I really like that. And it's something that we're talking, I'm taking a short story class at the moment. So we're talking about it a lot. Um, but you capture all these different ages of women so well, and all these different kind of life perspectives and you give them so much like warmth, but they're not like, it's not fake warmth. Right. I mean, they're just fully inhabited people. I have oh, like thousands of questions, but um, if you could maybe rewind a little bit, cause you touched on it, but I'm part of the story of the book is that you wrote, wrote a short story first. Right. And that was published um, a while before the whole book was published. Um, but did you have, like you said at the beginning that you were initially writing it from the perspective of the younger girls, but I guess, I just want to know the whole story of the book, basically. <laughs> I had initially imagined it as a collection of linked short stories, you know, and I think you, and the short story is my favorite form. You know, I'm, I'm working on short stories now and every now and then an event, someone will be like, when's the next novel? And I'll be like, maybe never. <laughs> I love short stories. And I think you see that residue all over this book. You know, I mean, Carla's chapter stands out as a, as a great example of a chapter that could really stand alone. And in fact, I think a lot of them do. Um, they have a, a really, Really nice sort of story arc to them. Um, but uh, 
So, yeah. So I had imagined this initially as a, as a collection of short stories. And then in, in the way that things morph and change, um, there were a couple of things about novels that I did think suited the, the, this particular group of women. Um, and one of them was the ability to kind of meander a little bit, um, you know, to really explore some ideas in depth. One of them for me, um, you know, was the, you know, was the nature of grief. You know, um, I was interested in 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 questions of mercy. Um, this question of, you know, what do you do when a when an injured stranger shows up on your doorstep? You know, whether it's a a young girl who's just endured this horrific assault, you know, or um, you know, or a family of immigrants who are knocking at the door of your country, you know, asking to come, right? Um, you know, and so that question of what do you do when the stranger is at your door, you know, how do you welcome them or not, um, was was of interest to me. Um, so so it kind of you know morphed from there. But but I, I have to say I also honestly I also reached a point where I, I no longer thought in terms of short stories or novels. I just thought in terms of this book and these characters and these stories, you know, I was, I was really kind of utterly disinterested in what exactly this was. In fact, and for a really long time, I just called this my book, you know, um, you know, or their book, the character's book. Um, but, um, but do you want to hear a, do you want to hear a story about Corrine Shepard yes. that will, that will go directly to the value sometimes of working on something for 14 years <laughs> for the first Four drafts of this book, Corrine was not a point of view character. She was she was a minor, minor, minor character whose entire job was to be the pithy, cranky old woman across the street who occasionally like walked across the street to deliver a piece of news that would maybe move my plot along and and to be a little tiny bit of maybe comic relief in a in a book that's not you know that's pretty pretty heavy in a lot of ways so four drafts she didn't have a point of view potter actually had a point of view um briefly before i decided i wasn't giving any of the men or boys points of view in the book um so i knew a little i knew more about potter than i knew about about corinne um and um but you know it wasn't working right something was missing in the book and um and so pretty late in the process i started focusing my i turned my attention to her and and to me that is a direct um that's that's a direct consequence of the time i spent with the book and the characters um the truth is is that i think when i began writing this book when hank was you know when i was pregnant with hank um i i couldn't have understood a character in corinne you know, in the way that that uh, that I came to understand, but there came a time in my life where I understood her sorrow in a really visceral way. Um, I understood what it meant to for a character to reach a point in her life where maybe she had decided that all her big decisions had been made, you know, and that there were no there was nothing new for her on this earth anymore, right? Um, you know, um, I came to understand what it. I, I came to understand um, how it might feel to 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 um, feel as if you had nothing to give, and that the world had nothing to give you in return, and that you just wanted to kind of, you know, as she says at one point, sort of quietly drink and smoke herself into the sweet hereafter, you know. So I came to understand her through my own experiences in ways that um, made it possible for me to write her pretty late in the process. So 
Yeah. And I love her, you know, I, I mean, I, now, yeah. right now, of course, like, it's like, what would this book have been like if she had stayed a minor character? Right. I mean, just the, the richness of her and, and also what she, what she brings to the book in terms of, I mean, she's wrong. Right. I mean, when this book opens, you know, she sees herself as not having anything to, she does, not only does she have nothing to give, she wants to give nothing, you know, not only does she have nothing she wants to take, she, she, you know, she, she, you know, she, she doesn't want anything to do with any of them. I mean, she turns around and walks away from a pregnant woman in labor, you know, I mean, you know, and, uh, and of course she's patently wrong, right? I mean, she does have something to give and, and that goes, I think that goes very much to, to some of the idea, one of the ideas that I, I'm always thinking about, you know, which is how, how do, how do characters in this case, women and girls without a lot of resources or, or power, um, or money or education, um, you know, how, how do they, you know, how do they find a way to, to stand up and behave in ways that are noble and courageous, that are all out of proportion to anything they ever imagined themselves capable of? Well, you get them there in small steps, which I think yeah. is, is really um, fascinating. But one of the things that I was thinking of as you were talking um, and talking about how the book changed with the four drafts with Kareen. And then also um, you've mentioned kind of bigger, like world with a capital W problems um, of, you know, environmental issues and immigration and things like that. Um, and one of the things that strikes me about the book is it's set in 1976, but it feels like the same West Texas that I knew growing up and spending, you know, lots of time in the summers out there with my, with my grandparents in the eighties and the nineties. And, um, which I guess the eighties wasn't that too long after 1976, but you know, math, um, <laughs> but like when you read Corrine's that chapter, I was in my grandparents' house, um, in my head. And how did you find, I just picked up a short story again that I started writing in the summer of 2016 and it's not that the world has it's not that the things that have gone on in the last four or five years are anything new to the world um, but they definitely have taken a much bigger place on the stage um, but I found that the story didn't work at all because of the changes between then and now um, as much in my own perception as well as in things that are going on and I had to kind of start all over and how did you find like the world changing as you wrote on this book for more than a decade? Um, how did you deal with that in what you were writing? Because I mean, even though it's set in the 1976, it's not like you are set in 1976 mm -hmm. and it's not like right. your readers are set in 76. Right. So how did you handle working on such a long, over a long span of time as the world around you was changing and knowing that it needed to be reflected in the book? You know, to some degree, I kept my I kept my writing life and my book completely separate. It was just this little space that I went into that was all mine, that was so apart from the rest of the world, um, and and that worked for me. I mean, one of the advantages, I mean, the pro, you know, one of the advantages of setting you know something in 19 that far back, right, is that there are certain things you just don't have to deal with at all, like 
the changing technology, for example, you know, I mean, I just, I, I set that, and I didn't think of that when I set the book there. I set the book in 76 because of what was going on with the oil boom. But again, you know, because I was, I was about nine, 10 years old. And so I thought, well, great, you know, I'll mine, I'll mine those experiences, you know, so, so I didn't have to think about a lot of that, you know, um, as I was working on the book and, and to some degree, the book really for me was just this little, this place that I went to at my desk where, you know, the world receded. But I, I guess one of the things that most changed was the way I looked at Glory and her family and my responsibility to them. You know, I, I knew very early in the book that I couldn't write this book without at least attempting to grapple with the racism and xenophobia that, that I saw growing up there. Um, you know, uh, and of course, I saw it from a really different perspective. I saw it from the perspective of a of a of a little white girl, you know, who who um, didn't know any Mexican American people at all, but heard a whole lot of talk around the Thanksgiving table, right? Um, you know, that was deeply racist and deeply xenophobic, xenophobic um, much of it from the people I most loved and admired in the world, right? So I think one of the things that changed was um, the way I treated Glory and her family became much more complicated, thank God, <laughs> um, you know, because, um, and I realized, you know, I, that I needed to interrogate a lot of my decisions. So, I mean, beginning with the very first decision to make this crime happen to her, right? And, and what my motivation was there. And then, you know, having having made that choice, what was my responsibility to her as a character and, and to her family um, to not to not, I mean, frankly, use her as a plot device, you know, I mean, not to to allow her to 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 sort of get the ball rolling. Um, so that that that's probably the thing that changed was her story and how I dealt with her and her family, you know. That was the biggest change. Um, but but again, but also, I mean, honestly, you know, again and again, I was reminded of that old adage, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. I mean, when I wrote um, when I wrote Mary Rose's section where she drives to Albuquerque to get an abortion, you know, um, I ran it past some girlfriends and and they were they were like, you know, you're going to have to you can't just put this in the book. You know, you're going to have to explain this to this goes to the not living in that part of the world. You're going to have to explain this to readers because a reader is going to look at this and say 1976. Wait, wait, wait. Roe v. Wade was 1973. You know, so why, you know, how, how on earth could she have to drive to Albuquerque, right, for an abortion? Um you know, and I and I really resisted the urge to kind of spell that out for for care, for readers. I mean, that was actually one of those places where I was like, nope, we're leaving it as it is. Let's just assume that all kinds of readers are going to understand the 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 reality of having to drive 300 miles to get access to a women's clinic. You know, and I left it alone. And you know, if you drove to if you flew into Midland today and needed an abortion, you would have to drive about 350 400 miles to get it. You know, there there was a brief shining moment in the 90s where Planned Parenthood got a foothold, right? Um, and it's gone. It's been gone, you know, since the late 90s, I believe. State of Texas drove it right out of there. So so the times change, right? But in a lot of ways, um, you know, this this, you know, this world is still full of women and girls who, you know, face the same kinds of problems that these characters do every day. 
I mean, another really good example is um, the disparity in wage earning in an oil town. You know, women always make a little less than men. You know, so if you look at Boston, for example, the average man's wage is something like, you know, 51,000 a year and the women's wage is 48. You know, it's, 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 it's lower, considerably lower. But, you know, if you look at Odessa from the, from the 2010 census and there, there was an oil boom, so wages were inflated quite a bit. Um, but the average earning for a man in 2010 was $51,000. The average earning for a woman, 19, one nine, $19,000, right? Because um, there aren't jobs for women in the oil patch that make a lot of money. There aren't a lot of women who work as roughnecks, you know, um, you, you know, you get, you get women who work as they'll, they'll haul sand, right. Or they'll haul, they'll be water haulers and they can make a ton of, you know, um, money doing that if they can endure, you know, the sexism and harassment. But, you know, for women in oil patch, patch towns, um, most of the jobs are, you know, bartending, waitressing, you know, it's, I mean, especially if those are women who haven't gone to college um, or had the opportunity to go to college or even graduated from high school as a lot of my characters in this book have not. So for me, um, you know, I really had to set the book aside and keep it in its own sort of just, you know, it was its own thing that was happening in my life that was completely apart from everything else that I saw and read and experienced. And at the other time, and at this, and, it, and on the other hand, you know, I was aware, right, of, of, of the way the world was changing. I was, I was aware it, particularly of the way of our understanding of racism and white um, supremacy um, worked and how it operated in, in, in art you know, and, and the silencing of other voices, um, you know, and, and what stories we had a, a right to tell. Although I have to say that that is a, that is a term that I really balk at who has the right to tell what story. Um, you know, I grew up in a time and place where all kinds of women and girls were told that they didn't have a right to tell certain things. So for me, that wasn't part of the equation, but what did become part of the equation, you know, it's fiction. You have a right to write any damn thing you want, you know, even if it's, far, far, far beyond your own experiences or, or, or you know, realities. Yeah, I think of Charles Portis's um, True Grit, where he writes from the point of view of a, what, 13-year-old girl? I mean, and does it so beautifully, you know, and I never want to, and I never want to denigrate the the value of imagination or empathy or, you know, an open heart. Um, but, you know, so I, so it wasn't that I was going to steer clear of things because I didn't have a right to do it, but I did come to understand differently the responsibility and the risk of doing that, you know, and, and, and what my responsibility was to Glory and her family. So does that answer your question? Like at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and readers, well, no, it's great. Yeah, it's a great answer. I think it was perfect. And you start to see why it took me so long to write my book. I'm so, I mean, I really do sort of circle the drain forever. I'm very slow. I'm always second guessing myself, you know? Um, well, I mean, you know, we were talking about craft a little bit earlier. I mean, one of the reasons it took me 14 years to write this book is because I'm slow as fuck. And I'm not <laughs> kidding. I mean, I can work on a paragraph for an entire morning and then throw it away and start all over the next day. You know, I don't, I don't write from any kind of outline or anything. I write, I, I, I do all of my discovery on the page. 
you know. Um, so on the one hand, I, I do all my discovery on the, the, the um, page, which means I, I write constantly. And on the other hand, my aesthetic tends to be pretty lean. You know, I really, I really like lean sort of muscular writing. And at the same time, I like it to be beautiful. So, so for every, you know, every thousand words I write, I might, I might end up hanging on to a couple hundred of them, but it also takes me a really long time to write those thousand words. Cause I'm not a gusher. Right. You know, so I've got these friends who will sit down and write, you know, 10 pages every morning. I mean, on my best fucking well-rested morning, I could not write 10 pages of new material. Like I just don't operate that way at all. You know? <laughs> so, so there's that, you know, and to some degree, I think you just have to make your peace with who you are as a writer, you know? Yeah, you have to. I think it's easy to have, sorry, uh, this is going to come out wrong. It's easy to have that confidence once you've like written a really great book that way, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Like, of course, you just have to decide that you're going to believe that it's going to work out because otherwise you'll just like go completely crazy in your own head, right? Like it's kind of pointless. It doesn't help you write any faster <laughs> to just like obsess about it. But that's actually not what I was going to say following on from <laughs> what you were talking about before. <laughs> Um, Megan and I have a kind of joke that time is like a circle and we're basically always living simultaneously in the Victorian area and the 60s and the 70s and 20 whatever year this is. But I also so thinking about like I know intellectually that your book is written in or set in 1976. But like if you ask me, is it set now? Like I wouldn't necessarily be sure. Like the way it lives in my mind, like if you ask me, does Kareen have a cell phone? Like I wouldn't necessarily know one way or the other. Obviously, she does in the 70s, but I think she that's would have what... like a Nokia flip phone though. If she had one. <laughs> hey, I miss my flip phone. She would hate it. <laughs> I miss my Nokia, like that little kind of crappy one. Yeah. yeah. So simple. <laughs> yeah. And you can't see Instagram on it. Um, but she'd still hate it. She would still bitch about it. And oh Alice made her get one and she doesn't like it because she yeah. doesn't want people being able to track her down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I do think that like it's so timeless, like it could be set now. Uh, I was listening to a podcast about the oil boom. It's like a Texas monthly podcast and 100% it like reminded me, you know, I mean, these things are also a cycle because all the sort of geopolitical and local dynamics are still basically in place. Maybe they get worse. Like, as you mentioned, the environmental damage, like it's not like the next cycle that happens, it gets better. It's definitely getting worse every time, right? But um, I think it's very kind of, in a way, I think, but that, I think that's an art to like, you know, let things continue to develop. I mean, now we all know that all the abortion clinics are being shut because that cycle is going that way right now as well. Right. So I think, you know, there is an art to like shutting out the world, but somehow also making everything that you're talking about very relevant. And as you're talking about the racism and white supremacy in those discussions, is there any tips like, you know, slightly practically, I guess, or how did you approach that? Because I think, I think, you have a writer, a writer has a right to write anything they want. Readers also have a right to reject it or critics have a right to criticize it, right? Um, and I think getting it right, and you're talking about risk and responsibility, but it's also, you know, just like you can write something, you're allowed to write something bad. I have a right to write the worst ever short story, right? <laughs> but like, I would like to write not that. Um, so how do you, how do you get that right? And how do you, um, kind of, I know part of it is your attitude when you go into it for sure. Um, and making sure that you're writing it for the right reasons, but anyway. 
I mean, I have a quick corollary yeah. to that. And how does like your story, your process and what you learned as, you know, you said earlier, maybe before we started recording about not being, about being a late, you know, we talk about late bloomers. How, like, how does all of that, like, how do you bring all of that to your, to your writing? I guess kind of your psychology when you're writing. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, so I, um, so when I say talk about, you know, keeping the book sort of separate, um, I should also say that, you know, when I, when I left home at 18, you know, for many, many, many years, I, I could hardly afford to come home at all, you know, so I mean, I came home about once a year. Um, and part of that, at, 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 at least at the beginning, it was because I didn't want to come home. Um, but but there came a point where I wanted to go home and I just couldn't afford it. You know, I mean, it's it's expensive to fly. You know, it's a long drive from wherever I was living at the time. And so I really fell out of touch with Texas in, 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 in a lot of ways and what was going on there other than just, you know, talking to my family on the phone and, and, a, and a few days, you know, once a year. When I, when I began working on Valentine, even though I was so far away and I still couldn't, when I was working on Valentine, I still couldn't afford to go home very often, except then I couldn't afford to go home very often with an infant and a husband, you know, so it was even more unaffordable to say fly, you know. And so one of the things that I did um, was I really, really immersed myself in Texas in my life here in Chicago, um, which is to say I read books, I, I watched film, I listened to music. Um, I listen to a lot of music when I write anyway. Um, but, you know, I can look at chapters in, in Valentine and tell you exactly what I was listening to. So, for example, I really, really got into Outlaw Country when I was working on um, Valentine. So like Chris Christopherson, I totally fell in love with Chris Christopherson, and, which is great because I actually remember my dad listening to him when I was a little girl, you know. Um, so I tried to really immerse myself in that world from afar. You know, I always kept, I mean, this is a silly thing, but I always kept up my subscription to Texas Monthly. You know, like wherever I lived, I always had a Texas Monthly coming in once a month and it, and it helped keep me, you know, sort of tied to the place, but it also let me watch, albeit from afar, you know, what was happening to Texas over the years and the kind of, um, you know, from a political standpoint, you know, the kind of just deep, deep, deep digging in, right, of wealthy white men, um, you know, in a state that had already, they were already pretty dug in. <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, they've been dug in from the beginning. Beginning, but you know, over the last you know twenty years or so, to really watch that happen and and sort of slow mo, um, and at the same time watching the the state become more diverse, you know, um, more people um, you know living in cities. Um, a much I think I mentioned you know in Odessa, something like 53 percent of people in Odessa now identify as Latinx, right? Um, which is a huge change from when I was a little girl growing up there. So I, I tried to stay tied into it um, and that way, um, you know, I used art, in other words, I used other art to, to help remind me and to help, you know, shape me along the way, even though I was a long way away. So practical advice, I guess, for staying tied to your work, was that? More sorry. like, how do you get this? Uh, sorry, maybe I didn't say it, but the Latina girl and making sure that you're reflecting the stories of that family, like, how do you kind of get that right? Because I think it is important Right. So I think it's easy for white writers to think, oh, I only have a right to write about my people I know and whatever. Right. And um, I also think that just means that like white writers only write about white people. And I think that's also not great. So. Right. 
No, without it, I totally agree. I mean, I, I tried to do my due diligence. I, I asked questions and I, and I showed, you know, some pages to, to people here and there who had more direct experience and asked for advice. Um, I read a lot, um, you know, um, I mean, some of them were just really sort of basic academic books that I probably should have read, you know, before like Borderlands, you know, I, I read Borderlands when I started working on, um, on Valentine. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I tried to do my due diligence in that way. I, and, and I, and I do believe that, you know, um, you know, I may not understand what it's like to be an immigrant, but I can understand what it's like to feel alienated, right? You know, I can, I might not understand what it's like to, you know, to, um, you know, to, to have your mom, you know, caught up in, in an immigration raid, right? Um, but I can understand what it's like to need someone and to long for them, someone who's foundational in your life and to not have them present for you, you know, um, through no fault of their own when you really, really need them, you know? So I, so I try to, you know, I try to bring those experiences and that kind of, um, I mean, I think empathy gets a bad rap, you know, and deservedly so, it, particularly if, you know, empathy is just a way of feeling bad for people without doing anything or, or admitting your own culpability in the systems, right? Um, you know, um, but, but, I, but I do think at its best, you know, we can take from our own experiences, you know, and understand our characters, a little, even the characters who are most different from us in that way. But that being said, I mean, the other thing that happened was I can't tell you how many times I thought I seriously thought about walking away from this book. And, and when I say seriously, I don't mean like, oh, it was a bad day of writing. I mean, like I set the book down for six or seven months at a time and, and did not want to go back to it and did not think I could, you know, like literally didn't think I had the wherewithal or the intelligence <laughs> or the, the skill as a writer, you know? Um, I mean, again, you know, I'm, this is my first book. You know, I started writing really late. I've always written around the margins of my life. The worst writing advice I ever heard was from a teacher, a male, um, who had a wife to keep his shit together for him, who basically would walk into workshop and say, did you write fiction today? And we'd say yes or no, or some of us would look at our feet, you know, and he'd say, well, if you wrote fiction today, you get to call yourself a writer because the writer is the person who writes every day. And I'm going to tell you something. It took me years to get that shit out of my head. I'm not even kidding. It, that is the worst writing advice I have ever heard in my life, because for some of us, that is just not our fucking reality. <laughs> You know, I mean, that is just not our reality. And maybe it's because you have young children in the house, or maybe it's because you're a working class writer who's, you know, coming home from eight, 10 hour, you know, shifts on your feet. Or maybe it's because you come from a place where you're told that your voice doesn't matter. Um, but for a lot of us, this idea that the writer is the person who writes every day is just not part of our reality. And it's devastating. You know, it's devastating to think, you know, all these brilliant people are telling you this and that it must be correct, right? They're experts. They've got all kinds of books out, you know, but it does not, but it does not align, I think, with the reality of people who, who don't come from a really narrow kind of circumstance and, and privilege, you know? So for me, you know, um, 
really getting rid of a lot of what I had been told about what was possible for me and and what and the way art worked and the way writers worked, you know, um, was a big part of it. But then finally, I mean, at the end of the day, the other thing that happened was I just, uh, you know, I realized that if I wasn't willing to just kind of put it all in there, everything, my whole heart, my whole soul, every bit of skill I had, and then frankly, just let the chips fall where they may, that, you know, I wasn't going to finish the book. So on some level, I, I kind of had to, um, I had to do my best. And I also had to make my peace with the idea that it could fail miserably. And I was okay with that. Now, that's probably, that's an easy thing to say since it didn't fail miserably, <laughs> right? It's hard to say where I would be, where I would be right now, emotionally and mentally, you know, if it had gone that way. Um, you know, with glory, I mean, one of the things that I made up my mind about pretty early, and early in the process, the editing process, right, you know, was that, and I remember writing about this at length in my, my journal, that if someone called me out on it, right? A, a reviewer. Um, and I don't read reviews. I stopped like after like the first three days after the book came out, <laughs> I was like stalking Amazon and I was like, this is going to be bad for my writing. <laughs> you know, so I just stopped, you know, I, I kind of had to just make my mind up that, you know, I, I just, I had to just let the chips fall from where they may and, and, um, and be okay with that. And I guess I'm lucky it, it worked out the way it did. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is I, I remember writing in my journal that I hoped that if someone called me out on it, that if I didn't do justice to Glory and her family, that if I, if I were, if I was racist, right, because I've got a lot of racist characters in this book and I have my own racism, you know, I'm, I'm certain of it. I mean, I grew up, you know, I grew up in the seventies in Odessa, Texas, they desegregated my high school in 82 under threat from the justice department, you know, so I know I've got my own shit going on here, you know, um, I, I, I kind of made up my mind that I, I, I aspired to, to have the wisdom if someone called me out on it to sit and listen to what they had to say and, and take it in and not be defensive about it, but to try to really, really, um, you know, give readers or critics or interviewers the space to, to, to let me know how I got it wrong and to be okay with that. And so that meant opening myself up to the risk that my book and my characters would be flawed, deeply, deeply, deeply flawed, and that that had to be okay with me, so. So I really clung, you know, to like that line from that Leonard Cohen song, right? There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, you know? I mean, I had to really cling to this idea that that even the book's flaws um, and failings would be would be somehow things of goodness and beauty and and usefulness to the world, you know, but that a lot of that depended on how I reacted if I were called out on this and, and what I ho have always hoped for is that when those moments come that I've had the wisdom to be like, you know what, tell me how I got it wrong. No, it's like, like not, you know, not in it, but seriously, tell me how I got it wrong and let's see that as a flaw and a failing with the book. And then I'll try to do better next time. That environment is racist and your characters have to be racist if they're going to be accurate. And also equally, the book is also about justice and like who gets justice and it's not a fairy tale. So I won't give away any, any plot spoilers, but like, you know, okay, well, suffice to say it's not a fairy tale, right? And that system is justice, but also it's your responsibility, I think, to, to show that and to have that be 
true in your fiction as well. So what are y'all working on right now? I was about to ask you the same thing. (laughs) Um, I'm working on surviving the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) Fair. That is like a full-time job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm working on some short stories. So um, a couple of, right now I'm working on one set in Phoenix that I abandoned a few years ago because I just couldn't make it work. And so I'm trying another, I'm trying to take another pass at that. Um, but I'm not writing very much right now, you know. Honestly, I'm uh, I'm journaling a lot, you know. Mostly just the journal equivalent of rocking back and forth in your chair and going, "What the fuck is going on with the world?" <laughs> um, but also, I mean, I've got a lot of friends who are, you know. I mean, my family has had our sorrows in the midst of, you know, this pandemic, and I've got a lot of friends who are suffering and I'm trying very hard to be present for them. You know, um, writing is such a solitary thing, right? You know, and it requires a fair amount of solitude and mental space that I just, in a lot of ways, don't feel like I've had the last few months. So I'm trying to make my peace with that and have faith that the stories will be waiting for me on the other side. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> that, that sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think like your whole story kind of speaks to that being possible though. I yeah. Mean, Megan, what are you working on? What am I working on? Oh, I am, what am I doing? I don't even know this week. This week has been the same kind of thing. No, I am finishing up some final, I hope, revisions before sending out a novel for queer to agents to query and kind of still messing about with with research for a different one. I, I don't know. I may always, maybe that may be my like messing about in boats for life is this other one that takes a lot of research. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of it. I'm trying to learn how to write short stories by working on them. Um, <laughs> not taking a class like Olivia is, maybe I ought to, but so that's something I'm really interested in when you're talking about it. Cause I don't know if that's the way my brain I don't think my brain works in that kind of short condensed thing. I think I'm kind of one of those who just like spreads it all out and then later has to go back and get rid of the extra. So I'm really into short stories, but partly it's because my attention span is not really long right now. Um, In reading as well as writing them. I finished a second draft of my novel in December and now I don't know like what I'm doing with that. So I'm playing around with like every day I'm writing something different and I'm just letting that. And then I just think about various questions that I have like probably four right now ongoing projects, like projects. Some of them are stories. Some of them are, I don't know what they are. Some of them are other things. And like when I go for a walk or something while I'm at work in a downtime, I just like think through those questions. And then the next morning, whatever the answer has been processed through like my brain computer, I just sort of put that onto the page. And then I don't know what I'm doing with any of it at the moment, but like, I think that's also fine. You know, honestly, right now, everything is so extraordinary. I think whatever you're doing or not doing is fine right now. Like I'm really, I'm really hanging on to that. You know, we're just all kind of, you know, hanging in there, which brings me kind of actually something we had talked about before, I think in one of our emails, maybe how very briefly, which is, is this idea of asking for help, mm-hmm. you know, and how, for me, that's another big part of the equation was, um, you know, I probably lost more years than I needed to, because I just, could not ask for help 
you know, and, uh, and part of it is where I'm from. You just, I mean, you just would literally rather die than ask for help. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you see that with Potter. I mean, the man is, you know, would rather put a bullet in his chest, right. than ask the old woman who he's lived with for his whole life to be with him in his final days, you know, it's heartbreaking. Um, but those of us who know that part of the world know that, that mindset. And for me, you know, asking for help was just about the worst possible thing. Um, and something that I was deeply unfamiliar with when I began, you know, Valentine. The one thing that Valentine taught me personally was that I had to ask for help for the first time in my life in real in real um, immediate and practical ways, yeah. you know. Yeah. So for example, you know, um, my husband took on a second job for, um, the last couple of years that I was the last few years that I was, I mean, we'd always had second jobs because we just the gig economy, but he took on a, it for, for, for the last four or five years that I was working on Valentine, he taught high school English all day. And then he, several nights a week, he drove up to the suburbs to tutor, rich people's kids, um, for the SATs, um, you know, and he did that so that I could take on as little freelance work as possible and turn as much of my attention to as possible to, to the book, you know, and the book wouldn't exist without it. Um, you know, my, um, I got a lot of mileage out of, um, out of a, a couple of residencies, you know, I applied for an NEA at some point and um, every dime of that went to childcare, <laughs> you know? Um, so I had a year where I had childcare for Hank when he was, you know, three, you know, that was just life-changing, you know? Um, and so asking for help. And, and, and to me, that also meant some sometimes seeking out community and signing up for workshops and classes aside from the MFA, you know, um, just local things. Um, that allowed me to have some community because I also got lonely. I mean, you know, I have out here in Chicago, I have friends who are in theater and musicians, and they're so much lovelier than, than us writers because they do things <laughs> together, you know, they collaborate and they, and they have company and they perform and, you know, um, and so reaching out and like sort of making community happen, asking for help in that way was really important to me. But again, you know, what's happening now is just so so extraordinary, you know, that I'm, I'm inclined to, for all of us to cut ourselves a break, you know, whatever yeah. that looks like. Uh, I'm conscious of time. This is my trademark phrase. And, <laughs> um, but we really, I mean, I genuinely could talk to you a really, really long time. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you. This has been so lovely. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. A little bit about your whole kind of journey um, with how you found. It says it's recording. Okay, because it doesn't on mine, so I'm just making sure. Sorry. Does it? (laughs) Hopefully.